Okay, if you've got a Bible, uh, and hopefully you've got the notes, it's Isaiah 52 today. Isaiah 52 and 53. While you're turning there, let me begin with an introduction. In 1947, uh, a Bedouin shepherd boy named Mohammed entered into a cave uh, just outside of Jericho and discovered perhaps the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Uh, he stumbled across the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were a collection of Old Testament scriptures hidden in jars in this cave that carbon dating went on to prove or to date as coming from uh, at least 230 BC. So at least 230 years before Christ, someone had hidden these scrolls of the Old Testament in this cave outside of Jericho. And just so happened that this boy Muhammad discovered them on this day. Well, within those scrolls was the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, and within the scroll of Isaiah, one of the most famous and uh, incredible passages in the entire Bible. Uh, it's called the Fourth Servant Song. And it's a carefully crafted poem written by Isaiah that speaks with remarkable detail about a suffering servant who would come and die a death in the place of others and be raised to new life to share the spoils of his victory with those he died to set free. We're going to study that together. So let me read it for us. <clears throat> We're going to begin in verse 13 of chapter 52. And this is what Isaiah says. More importantly, this is God's word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely or prosper. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they will see, and that which they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. <clears throat> Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that has brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he not opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. 
by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, though separate in different rooms across the city, We thank you that we can unite around your word, filled with the same spirit, to hear the same good news of the gospel and the same saviour, Jesus, who has rescued us. We pray you give us ears to hear right now and hearts that come alive afresh as we consider the greatness of the good news of Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, in Acts chapter 8, there's a story of uh, the Ethiopian Chancellor of the Exchequer, who is riding on a chariot from Jerusalem and Jericho up back to Gaza. And uh, he's sitting on his chariot and he's reading uh, a scroll from Isaiah 53. And Philip, one of the early church leaders in the book of Acts, is led by the Holy Spirit to go out onto this road and to run and to catch up with the chariot. Uh, And as he does, he asks the Ethiopian eunuch what he can do for him. Can he help him to understand what he's reading? So he jumps into the chariot and the Ethiopian eunuch says, I'm reading Isaiah 53. I can't really understand it. Can you help me? And Philip says, sure, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that is the story of Isaiah 53, a glorious chapter that dramatically reveals the person and the work of Jesus. So what we thought we would do in the next two weeks in the run up to Easter is just try and spend a little bit of time in Isaiah 52 and 53 so that we can see the glory of Jesus in his gospel afresh. Now as we come to this chapter two weeks isn't really going to do it justice uh, and I feel very inadequate to try and preach uh, one of the high points of scripture into a camera but I'm going to trust that God will use the meager efforts uh, to bless us all Uh, and so we're going to dive in straight away and see this glorious message that Isaiah has. That wasn't written just 230 years ago, it was written 700 years before Christ was born. So if you've got your sheets, this is the bit where you might need to just look at them because uh, Isaiah 52 and 53 that we've just read is uh, made up of five sort of paragraphs that are broken down into three verses each. Uh, And it's been carefully crafted and arranged to show us the central and the dominant theme of this servant song and I got this uh, from uh, David Jackman's commentary so I'm very grateful to him Uh, and what you'll see is that there's kind of like there's two matching pairs uh, an A pair and a B pair 
that then sort of point the bookend uh, and move us towards the central theme, which is which is statement number C in your notes. And so you'll see that there's the servant's success in chapter 52, verses 13 and 15, and then again at the end in 53, 10 to 12. Then there's the pair of stanzas or paragraphs that speak about the servant's suffering in 53, verses 1 to 3, and 53, verses 7 to 9. And they're all working us towards the central stanza, the central paragraph, the heart of the matter, in this servant song, which is uh, verses four to six in chapter 53, the servant's significance, that he is the sin-bearing saviour. And so we're going to just look at these three things that Isaiah wants to highlight for us uh, as we behold the servant. So the first thing we're going to see is behold the successful servant, the successful servant. So this is verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52, and then the end verses 10 through 12 of chapter 53. Now, the opening verses of verse 13, the opening lyrics of this fourth servant song begin where Jesus ended up. He's in glorious exaltation, having triumphed in the mission to save sinners. He is high and lifted up, which is the same term that's used in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees God on his throne, high and lifted up. But yet this pathway to glory, this pathway to exaltation happens through tremendous suffering. So in verse 14, Isaiah quickly comments about how repulsive and how disfigured this servant was in unimaginable suffering that he faced. He says many will be astonished or better shocked and appalled at the enormity and the severity of the suffering of this servant. And that was true wasn't it for Christ at the cross, that he was flogged and scourged and beaten and spat upon and mocked with purple robes and crowns of thorns, made to carry his cross through the busy streets of Jerusalem out onto a hillside called Golgotha, where he was stripped and nailed to that crossbeam and lifted up and crucified and left hanging to die. And in that moment, on that first Good Friday, it looked as if Jesus had utterly failed in his mission. And in verse 9 of Isaiah 53, we see that the final indignity that he faced, that this servant faced, was that he was laid in a tomb among the wicked and the rich, which was fulfilled by Joseph of Arimathea, who took Jesus' body down from the cross and laid him in his own tomb. But Jesus didn't die as a helpless victim or a failure. He died as a victor over Satan and sin and death. His suffering was not in vain. It was fruitful and successful. And in verse 10 of chapter 53, Isaiah foresees that the servant's death will not prevent him from seeing his offspring or from living forever or from being prosperous and successful. And that's because on the third day, on that first Easter Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave to new life. He rose up because death could not hold him. And he rose up because he was successful in his mission and was validated and vindicated by his father that he had done all that he had set out to accomplish. Then in verse 11 of chapter 53, Despite the servant's anguish, we see that he will be satisfied. He will experience delight and joy in all that he accomplishes. And then in chapter 53, verse 12, we see the servant as a conqueror. 
that all of his enemies are vanquished and defeated and that this risen champion is returning to his people victorious in war showing the scars of the battlefield and yet victorious and he comes with the spoils of war the victory the prizes that he has gained from his victory in war that he's going to share with the people that he has saved so what are these spoils what is this success that the servant achieved well in verse 15 of chapter 52 Isaiah talks about how this servant will sprinkle many nations and I think right there he's probably thinking about the priestly work of of the Levitical priests in the Old Testament and maybe particularly Leviticus chapter 16 and the day of atonement that was a day when the high priest would enter into the most holy place It was the only day of the year that he could do that and he would enter with the sacrifice, the blood of a sacrifice, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, making atonement, cleansing the people, the nation of Israel before God. He sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice. Likewise, Jesus, as both the sacrifice and the great high priest, sprinkles his blood his pure and powerful and plentiful blood on people from many nations, Isaiah tells us. People from different tribes and languages, making us right with God. And what Isaiah saw in chapter 52, John, the apostle, celebrates in Revelation 7 when he writes this in verse 9 and 10. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, washed clean, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then the writer of Hebrews would say in chapter 7 verse 25, drawing on that language of Isaiah 53 verse 12, that Jesus is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So behold the successful servant. Secondly, behold the suffering servant. Isaiah has already alluded to this theme in verse 14 of chapter 52, but in verses 1 to 3 and again in 7 to 9, he turns from the exaltation of the servant to the humiliation of the servant, to the humiliation that Jesus would endure to save sinners from the wrath of God. Verse 1 speaks of this arm of the Lord. That's an Old Testament reference to God's awesome power and strength that this arm is about to be revealed well, what's that going to be like? Well, perhaps you watch TV and sports and you see boxers or sports teams come onto the arena or to the field of play. And usually there's an announcer that says, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. And there's spotlights and there's flashing and there's smoke and there's fireworks and there's pizzazz and fanfare. Will the arm of the Lord make an epic entrance? Well, verses two and three trace out the incarnation of Jesus for us. And they tell us no. He's described as a young plant, a sapling who kind of sprouts up in a dry and desolate desert place. Wholly reflecting, Isaiah here is wholly reflecting the the truth that Jesus would be born in the squalor of a borrowed stable. And then he goes on to tell us that this servant, Jesus, would be completely ordinary. 
that there was nothing particularly attractive or splendid or outstanding or special about him. He was a carpenter's son from an obscure village in the northern part of Palestine. He was the exact opposite of the modern day superhero Avengers that we watch on our movie screens. And this apparently weak and unimpressive man is described as a man of sorrows. Not Mr. Miserable like an ancient Alf Garnet, but that he was a man who was familiar with grief because of his own experience and because he carried our griefs and our sorrows. Jesus came for humanity, but it was the very people that he had made, his own people, the Jews, his own family at times, they rejected him, they despised him, they hated him. He came for humanity, but humanity saw no worth or value in the servant. He was nothing special. He wasn't what they wanted. And Jesus firsthand knew rejection. He knew loss and injustice and oppression and disappointment. He knew all about temptation and false accusation. He knew all about loneliness and abandonment and suffering and pain and grief and sorrow. He was a man of sorrows. And yet he accepted this sorrow and the hatred and the despising of the people that he came for because he knew that that was the price he had to pay to rescue them from their sins. So Paul would later write in Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. Now, why did he sink so low? Well, he sank so low because he had to be made like us so that he could die for us, so that one day we could be made like him. And there's a side element to this as well, that because he sank so low, because he became like us, he's, as Hebrews 4 tells us, he's able to sympathise with us in our weaknesses and in our temptations and in our griefs and in our sorrows. He's able to enter into the hardships and the difficulties that we face to care for us and to comfort and to console us as only a man of sorrows could. Then in verses 7 through 9, we're told that even though he was oppressed and afflicted and he suffered the greatest miscarriage of human injustice that the history has ever seen and known, Jesus wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't caught in a web of events that were beyond his control. He went willingly to the cross. He was the great shepherd, as he says in John 10 verse 11 and again in verse 17 and 18, who lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from him, but he willingly lays it down and he will take it up again. So the death of Jesus was not a capitulation to weakness, but an exercise of his deliberate control. It wasn't that he was overpowered, but that he laid down his life so he might overcome. It wasn't that he was subjected to the hands of a devilish human plot, but he willingly submitted to the divine plan from all eternity. 
and he displayed no violence, no complaining, no arguing, no retribution or retaliation, no blaspheming or charging or blaming God. As Peter would remind us in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus committed no sin. Paul would say the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, no sin. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, Peter continues. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, Peter says, we have been healed. Hear the echoes of Isaiah 53. For you were straying like sheep, Peter says, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Jesus, in all of his words and his actions, died innocent of his own sins. And he went willingly to the cross because he knew it was the Father's will for him to die, that he was the essential cog in the great plan of salvation that was forged before the foundation of the world. And he subjected himself to that cross, to that instrument of barbaric torture. And he subjected himself to the scorn and to the shame and to the curse of being hung on a tree. And he subjected himself to single-handedly face the white hoth, righteous wrath of God towards sins that he had not done but because he was prepared to sacrifice himself for his enemies. So behold the suffering servant. Then thirdly and finally, behold the sin-bearing servant. As we said, verses 4 to 6 are really the heart of the matter. The central stanza is the apex and the climax of this fourth servant song. And you'll notice the change in the language that Isaiah uses as he wants this song to hit us right at home in the heart. For the servant is joined by someone else in the song. No longer is it he, but it's we as well. As he draws attention to it's our sin who nailed him to that tree. So like uh, the painter Rembrandt who painted uh, a painting called the, the Raising of Christ and he painted himself at the foot of the cross joining in in the Raising of Christ on the cross and he's wearing a blue beret you can google it and see it for yourself Rembrandt painted himself into that picture because he knew something that Isaiah was getting at here in verses four to six that we our sins you and me nailed Jesus to the cross Luther said, I think Martin Luther, the old German monk, that we carry the very nails that nailed him to the tree in our pockets. We were responsible. And this is why John Stott would say in his commentary that before we can see the cross as something done for us, we need to see it as something done by us. And Isaiah is very clear in verses four through six that we, that everyone, that all of us are steeped in iniquity and transgressions and deserving of eternal punishment and eternal death for our war of rebellion against God. You know, in our world, we are told uh, by uh, singers like Katy Perry that we're like tigers and we've got to let the world hear our roar. But here Isaiah tells us, yeah, we're animals, but we're sheep. Sheep are 
Not cuddly and cute like Shaun the Sheep, but filthy and dirty. They're helpless and defenceless and vulnerable. They are animals that scare easily and then dart off all over the place, taking actions without taking note of their surroundings or their consequences, and they get themselves into serious trouble. And Isaiah tells us that we're sheep, that all of us, every single human being that's ever drawn breath, has wandered off away from God, that we've gone our own way and that we've got ourselves into serious trouble, that we've messed up our lives badly. Even those who like to look proudly are others thinking that they've got it together. We've all failed. But our sins are not just shortcomings or mistakes or errors of judgment because the cross shows us the seriousness of our sin. So one commentator, John Oswalt, in his commentary on Isaiah says this, that the servant was pierced through and crushed is the measure of how seriously God takes our rebellion and crookedness. We typically work to make light of our shortcomings, to explain away our mistakes, but God will have none of it. The refusal to bow to the Creator's rule and our insistence on drawing up our own moral codes that pander to our lusts are not shortcomings or mistakes. They are the stuff of death and corruption. And unless someone can be found to stand in our place, they will see us impaled upon the swords of our own making and broken on the racks of our own design. Our sins are serious, cosmically serious, eternally serious. Our guilt must be paid for. God cannot just sweep it under the rug. He cannot just turn a blind eye to evil. Either you pay it or I pay it or someone else has to pay for our sins. It's a little bit like when you get in a car accident and you damage your car as you hit someone else or someone else hits into you. The damage and the cost of the wrongdoing or the injury that someone suffers has to be paid for by someone. Either you swallow it yourself and pay for it or the other person pays for it, or the insurance company pays for it. But someone has to pay. It's the same with us. We all need someone who can free us from the guilt of our sin. We all need someone who will pay the penalty for our sin. We all need someone who will heal our brokenness and bring us back to God. So what does God do? Into the misery and the mess of his broken world, he sends his suffering servant, to be the sin-bearing servant, to stand in our place, to be pierced for our transgressions, to be crushed for our iniquities, to take the judgment that we deserved and the penalty, and to die the death that we deserve to die because of our many sins. So God shifts the blame from us onto Christ and he dies in our place on the cross as our substitute, paying the penalty and making atonement for us so that we might go free. And God points the finger of his white hot fury and righteous wrath at Christ for our iniquities and our sins. All that we've ever done and all that we will ever do. And in that moment on the cross, Jesus is charged with our boundless debt of sin and willingly dies in our place. 
bearing upon those outstretched arms the full weight of our sin and guilt. And in dying love, he invites us. He extends this invitation to all of us. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And his blood flows down from that cross to sinners of all kinds, the very ones that drove him to his death. And he comes to sprinkle that blood upon us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from every unrighteous thought and deed and act and word and motive that we've ever done. He can sprinkle us clean and make us acceptable to God. His blood flows to us so that we might be forgiven and made alive with him forevermore. And his blood flows to us so that we might have new hearts and new lives and new hope and healing and peace. So this suffering servant is a successful servant as he bears away our sin and he heals us perfectly and eternally from all the damage that sin has wrought. That's why at the beginning of this time together, we encourage you to listen to or sing through before the throne of God above. Because we have a strong and perfect plea in heaven, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. He's the one who made an end of all of our sin. He was the sinless saviour who died so that our sinful souls could be counted free. And he is the perfect spotless righteousness for each of us. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself. Now we cannot die because our souls have been purchased by his blood. Our lives are hid with Christ on high. With Christ our saviour and our God. So behold the successful servant Behold the suffering servant and behold the sin-bearing servant. Isaiah 53 holds up to us this servant, but he's not a servant who is to be pitied. He's a servant who is to be praised. And so Paul would write again in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray.